This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. We're studying the book of Hebrews this year on Office Hours, and we're at chapter 11. The theme of Hebrews, Jesus is really better. Joining us today is Dr. Steve Baugh, professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary, California, where he has taught since 1982. He is the author of several articles, two Greek grammars, and is a contributor to the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Background Commentary. All these and more are available through... The Bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Well, Steve, here we are in chapter 11, the faith chapter of Hebrews, the one that is perhaps more well-known than any other chapter in the book of Hebrews. Can you characterize the chapter as a whole for us before we dive in and begin working our way through it? Hebrews himself characterizes the chapter for us in chapter 12. And I think this is vital to understand Hebrews 11 correctly. He starts, for example, really the whole chain begins in chapter 10, when he says, you have need of endurance. This is chapter 10, verse 36. Then in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, let us run the race which is set before us with endurance. And it's the same word picked up. So all between there is material that develops the idea of faith and enduring in faith in our profession of faith. Then he tells us how he views the people in chapter 11, which is so often understood as they are understood as models for us to emulate, which they are, but he presents them as witnesses whose testimony we are to heed. And that's really what is happening here. This is a key chapter in Hebrews because his main concern is dealing with people who want religion to be dealing with things you can see and handle and touch. And in their day, it was regarded as the real thing. We have to have a sacrifice that we can smell because we think of sacrifice as being really awful, but you really should think of it as a barbecue. It's this wonderful meal around roasted meat. It's a barbecue. And this is what people associated religion with. But in Christianity, we have a sacrifice of our Savior in a heavenly tabernacle and we cannot see him now. And even the sacrifice he gave on the cross, we could see that if we were there. But we, in our day, and in Hebrews' day, writing after that period, we can't see that, and yet that's the basis of our faith. So chapter 11 presents us with the testimony of Scripture to the realities of Christ given from the very beginning up until the coming of Christ. And it's not just something that occurs then, the problem of looking for something or wanting something that's visible and tangible, that's not just something they faced in the first century. That's surely something the church has always faced, and maybe in our setting, in our culture, more now than ever. Absolutely. Today we face people who are tempted to introduce elements in worship, which may look like it's aiding our worship, but in the end distracts from the reality of the work of Christ being the center of our worship and our attention in the worship service. Well, let's look at the first three verses. Now, faith is the assurance, reading from the English Standard Version, of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old 
received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. What's he saying about faith here in these opening verses? These verses have often been and were, particularly in the Western medieval church, taken as the definition of faith. Yeah, I've worked on this passage for a long time. I spent 10 years or more actually meditating on this passage before writing a uh, rather long journal article on this passage. And part of what's troubling when you're dealing with the passage is that translation. And it is because when you look at the words in the original Greek, the word for assurance and confidence, I forget how the second word, how they render elenkos. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction. So conviction is what the ESV has. So the two words rendered assurance and conviction never mean that in Greek. And I don't say that lightly. But the word conviction in particular, these words are set up in parallel. It's very obvious when you look at it that these are presented as to be taken together as parallel things. Faith is the, and then he gives the word that's rendered assurance. But even more with the word rendered conviction, the word means proof. It means evidence that you render in court to demonstrate the reality of something that you don't see and don't witness, or that you witness and you can show its truthfulness even though the jury can't see it. This is what a witness does. A witness presents proof of something to somebody who wasn't there. This is why he calls them a cloud of witnesses. They are the people who are recorded in Scripture from the Old Covenant era that he recounts here are witnesses to us of things that we cannot see, things that we hope for in the future and yet have already been introduced in Christ in some inaugurated way. And so what he's really doing is characterizing faith as putting the faith of the Old Covenant believers of Scripture as presenting to us a testimony to the work of Christ that would come in the future from their vantage point. And so when you work through this passage, look at how everything in the passage is brought forward as they were looking and confessing and speaking and hearing testimony about Christ and his work that he would accomplish when he came on earth. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. When the medievals, and particularly in the 16th century, when Rome looked at this, they understood the first noun there, hypostasis, which became a really important word in the history of Christian theology, becomes part of the discussion of the Trinity. But here, when Rome looked at this, they built into it uncertainty as of the essence of faith. And that's just exactly opposite what the author is offering to the congregation, because they're being tempted to go back to or to turn away from Christ to things that can be seen. And he's saying that faith is the hypostasis or the arguably the substance. What do you think of that? In other words, when you have the gift of faith, it links you to Christ. And when you have Christ, you have the stuff that was hoped for and the evidence of the pragmaton that he mentions here, the proof of it. In other words, for him, faith is not uncertainty, it's certainty, because it connects you to Christ, and Christ is the certainty. Christ is the evidence. Christ is the proof. 
Well, I think that's all correct, but it's not what he's saying. Okay, good. <laughs> so go through it again for us so that we get clearly how it is you want us to read this. Yeah, it's a very difficult thing to convey briefly, but let me start by saying he's not defining faith. That's my first conviction, if I can use that word, and I'm assured of this. It's characterizing the faith of the Old Testament believers who are speaking to us. That's really how you have to read this chapter. He's saying, here's what these people by faith, and that's the key, is you read that by faith, by faith, by faith throughout the chapter, you can see that it's by faith they're doing something. And it's what they're doing that he really wants you to look at, not their faith per se. Yes, and it is out of faith that they did this, and that's really important too, but they're testifying to us of the work of Christ to come, and we should put our trust in that. And there we have certainty. So the certainty comes by focusing on Christ, not on our faith or even having faith. Faith is a means for appropriating the work of Christ. You know, you see that in the passage because it really is analogous to when James in James chapter 1 says, this is true and undefiled religion, to care for widows and orphans in their distress. And you look at that and you say, well, that's not a definition of religion. That's what religion looks like. It characterizes it. Well, that's what Hebrews is doing in chapter 11, verse 1. This is what faith looks like. What do people who have faith, what do they do? What does their life look like? And then he goes through and shows you what the life of these Old Testament saints from Scripture look like, and then they become, because they're in Scripture, they become witnesses to us through the Holy Spirit, because they're recorded in Scripture, to these realities in Christ. Because this is a key point, if I can insert this as well. The people that Hebrews is writing to are hearing they should go back to the old-time religion of Moses and Abraham and the Old Testament people, which is the temple and the barbecue sacrifices and all the smells and bells that real religion is like. So go back to the Jewish temple. And Hebrews is saying, if you want the old-fashioned, the old-time religion, come to Jesus. Because that's what those saints of the Old Testament are testifying about in the Scripture. Thank you. That's exactly where I was hoping that you would go, because we want to try to remember the original context, which is the problem of apostasy and the thing to which these people are being tempted. And what happens is the the truth of the history of salvation gets perverted a little bit by the tempters. They're saying, go back to Moses, go back to Abraham. And the writer to the Hebrews, this pastor is saying, yes, by all means, but let's understand what that means. To go back to them means to go to Jesus. So if you're going away from Jesus, you're not actually going back to Moses. You're not actually going back to Abraham or any of the heroes. So that gets me where I wanted to go next, which is the question on which you've already touched. And that is how we should view the quote-unquote heroes, the list of heroes that follows. I mean, sometimes and frequently it is said, you know, we should be like Abel, we should be like Enoch, be like Noah, be like Abraham, etc. And I don't think anyone doubts that's true, but we need to understand from this context and from this passage what that means to be like those people. Well, it's exactly right. We should be like these people, and Hebrews would agree with that. He actually says that in chapter 3. It's a negative example. We shouldn't be like the wilderness generation. But implied in that is holding up other people. We should be like that. And I think he has that interest here, but it's not primarily what he's saying. What he's saying primarily is we should heed the testimony of these people, because what you said earlier is exactly right. If you want to go to the religion 
of the Old Testament saints, you come to Jesus. Why? It's because that's what they are saying to us in the Scripture. Now, this is evident in many of these places. Particularly, look at chapter 4. How can you emulate Abel and be murdered by your brother? This is not something you'd want to do, obviously. You could say, well, he walked with God, he offered a a more valuable sacrifice than Cain. But then when you read further in Hebrews, it says that even Abel, even though he's dead, he still speaks. And see, that's the key part of this whole chapter is it's not that we have to just look at Abel's life and see that as a model, but we should listen to Abel. He is speaking to us about Christ and a sacrifice that's better than his sacrifice, which is where Hebrews takes us in chapter 12, when he says, you come to Jesus in the blood of the new covenant, which is better than the blood of Abel. So that gets us back to the whole business of witness, that Abel is a witness. And so if we're going to be like Abel, we need to pay attention to the message of his life, which Hebrews explains for us in 11 verse 4. He was looking forward to Christ. And then verse 5, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And again, this isn't a promise that if we trust in Jesus, we'll be taken up and not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And how did he please God? By faith. That's right. And so these are models to us of faith, but secondarily. They are people whose lives speak to us. And part of why I insist on that is you have to read Hebrews chapter 11 in light of everything Hebrews says. It's really embedded in the whole book. The whole book is one continuous thought, really, that's complex and developed, but he's not moving to a different topic here or something. And throughout, he's been saying, well, the Holy Spirit testifies. And the word commended here, I just don't think it means that here either. It's the word that generally is translated elsewhere and throughout Hebrews as received testimony, that there is testimony being born. Later on, he talks about people who confess and bear testimony through their words about their hope in a city not made by hands. So Abraham and the fathers with him, you know, his heirs, the other patriarchs, testify that their hope is not in a city of this world. They are pilgrims. So you you have to heed their testimony. And this is what a witness does. He bears testimony. But you see, in chapter 11, verse 4, the testimony comes originally from God. God bears testimony to him, and then he bears testimony to us by being a subject of Scripture, because it's Scripture where the Holy Spirit testifies to us. Now, that being said, throughout this whole thing, again, you really should see it's faith, and that leads to endurance. And so these people are also a model of endurance because of their faith and that they're waiting, they're looking ahead. Well, we do too. Hebrews knows that we are in a state where Christ has come, certainly, and things have changed. He has inaugurated the realities of the world to come, but they're not yet consummated. And because of that, in a sense, we're really like in the same position as Abel and Enoch and Abraham and Moses, waiting for the consummate fulfillment of God's promises. 
Verse 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And then he goes on, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this He condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. How does Noah's confidence in the invisible encourage the congregation in their temptation to go back to Moses and the visible? And how does it encourage us to do the same? What I'm thinking about is the pressure that the congregation was under from the outside to turn away is analogous to although maybe less than, the pressure that Noah felt when he defied the entire world and endured scorn, trusted God, built an ark, and then waited for a flood that nobody could see until they saw. How does that serve as an encouragement to them, and what does that say to them about their circumstances and enduring the kind of unofficial pressure and maybe even persecution that some of them were enduring? Yeah, it almost answers itself, doesn't it? Because it's the same God behind that And in particular, Hebrews sees what happened in Noah's day as a model in a small scale of what's going to happen on the last day. This is not unique to Hebrews. This is also in Peter's writings and certainly is uh, clear in Scripture that Noah, when he built the ark, it says here he condemned the world and became savior of his household, that he really is a portrait of Christ and the salvation of the people of God through the floodwaters of divine judgment. And this is why Hebrews brings in here a very interesting phrase. He became an heir of the righteousness according to faith. If you look Look at every other scripture reference to Noah in Genesis and in Ezekiel, even in 1 Peter 3. It always mentions Noah's own righteousness. He was a righteous man. He was upright. He walked with God through his righteousness, even if a righteous man like Noah in Ezekiel were to arise, etc. But here, Hebrews says, well, yes, he was an upright and a righteous man because he was a man of faith, but his righteousness is inherited. If it's inherited, it's not his. It's given to him. Namely, it comes according to faith. It is a righteousness he receives from Christ by faith. This is Protestantism. This is the Protestant Reformation right there, that we receive an alien righteousness. Hebrews, in agreement with the rest of Scripture, and particularly Paul, is really clear on this, so that we too see that our full inheritance is in the future. God will take care of us now. He will have regard for us. But just as certainly as he saved Noah in the ark, that same God who bore testimony to Noah and through Noah bears testimony to us, he will deliver us from the floodwaters of any sort of opposition we face in this world. But in particular, on the last day, we will stand. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain 
the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His gospel, and His church. In verse 10, Abraham is said to be looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. How does this truth, or what does this reality that Abraham, 2,000 years before the Incarnation, that he was looking for a heavenly city, what does that say, again, about the situation that this Jewish Christian congregation is in, and what does it say about the nature of the hope of believers before the Incarnation? Because there are Christians who give the impression that, you know, under Abraham and under Moses, they were only really looking for earthly things— And it's only in the New Covenant that we begin looking at heavenly things. But here, Hebrews paints a very different picture. This is probably my favorite passage in the whole chapter because it is so clear and so interesting in that he's simply interpreting the biblical text like we do. So he's interpreting the account of Abraham in Genesis just like we would do. And for that reason, he's a model for us how we should interpret Scripture. So people say, well, Certainly, Abraham, when he heard about the land that he was going to inherit, he wouldn't have thought about the world to come, right? Hebrews says, of course he did. And it's interesting how he arrived there. He arrives there by saying, well, look, he was not given that land that he was promised by God right away. He had to wait. And having to wait forced Abraham to see that the inheritance that God had for him was future. He wasn't going to give it to him yet. And over time, as more revelation from God accumulated, God spoke to him further, it dawned on him that the inheritance that God provided for him was not a city of this world, but of the world to come. How can we assert that? How can we know what Abraham is thinking? Hebrews points to two things. One, his actions. It's not just Abraham, but also the other patriarchs. His actions. And it says, well, if he had been thinking about an earthly inheritance, he had time to go back to his original homeland. But he didn't. Therefore, he hoped in a future inheritance. And then secondly, his words. So their words and their actions show us what they're thinking. And their words are, I'm a stranger and alien in the land. Therefore, this is particularly verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So you see from their words and their actions that the people of the old covenant era were looking for a fulfillment of divine promises that exceeded the typological promises that they did experience, you know, Abraham's heirs in the land of Israel. But they saw that as not the ultimate fulfillment of the promise. The real promise was heavenly. The real country they were inherited, the homeland that they were longing for, was one where they would see God and dwell with him forever. Is it fair to say that if someone has a method of reading the Bible— which we sometimes call a hermeneutic, if someone has a method of reading the Bible that leads them to contradict this way of reading the Bible that we see in Hebrews, that they should reconsider the way they read Scripture. You're saying that it's possible to look at the way Hebrews interprets the whole sweep of the history of redemption leading up to Jesus and see not only that he did it, but how he did it. Is that fair? 
I think that's fair. I think the only safe way to interpret Scripture is the way Scripture interprets itself. I think we have divine modeling of how we're supposed to interpret Scripture through the inspired authors of the New Testament, like Hebrews. How should you interpret the Old Testament? Look at how the New Testament authors did it. They were inspired and show us how to do it the same way. If you were to ask Hebrews that question, he told you in chapter 5. He said, well, I wish you would do this. <laughs> I wish you were all teachers of these things so that I didn't have to do this for you. It's really rather obvious. Well, it isn't always obvious to us, but he wants us to follow his pattern of interpreting Scripture and to know these things and have the same deep conviction of the centrality of Christ in our life and in our faith that he has, because it's also the centrality of Christ in the life of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Enoch, Abel, all the saints that are recorded here in Hebrews 11, including Moses. In verses 17 through 22, we have a reflection on the near sacrifice of Isaac, which is often misunderstood. Can you walk us through that? What is the pastor to the Hebrews making of this episode, and why and what should we make of it? I like one thing you said very much when you say the near sacrifice of Isaac. We often call it the sacrifice of Isaac. But I would ask you to think that the common interpretation of Isaac is not wrong. I think it's a biblical idea, and that is that Isaac's near sacrifice is certainly a portrait of the sacrifice of Christ. That's what people normally do with the uh, near sacrifice of Isaac, and I think it is correct. So it's not an error to understand it that way. But Hebrews adds something that's particularly strong that we normally don't think about. And he says in verse 9, he makes it very clear. It's really not hard to interpret. He says it outright in verse 19. He considered that God was able to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So in receiving Isaac back figuratively from the dead, even though he didn't actually die, figuratively he did, Abraham was receiving testimony from God of the resurrection from the dead. So part of Abraham's faith now and everybody after him is faith in the resurrection from the dead. People sometimes say, well, you know, the doctrine of the resurrection is not really in the older parts of Scripture. Well, yes, it is. It's right there in that near sacrifice of Isaac. Yeah, that's really important because I remember being told repeatedly by a university professor that the Hebrews had no doctrine of afterlife and certainly no doctrine of resurrection. And he said that was the result of a synthesis of Greek philosophy, which he didn't define, with various Christian themes. And thereby, he set up a strong juxtaposition between the New Testament and the Old Testament. And here, the writer to the Hebrews, who is most likely Jewish, writing to Jewish believers, puts the lie to that, right? That's absolutely right. People who want to gainsay doctrines like the resurrection don't know how to read Scripture to begin with. And you have to read it how it was written. In Genesis, we have a narrative of God's interactions with people, and it's written to convey doctrine through actions, shall we say. And if you're looking for doctrine only in certain kind of overt statements— you will find some wonderful doctrine from the overt statements of Scripture, but also the actions of people and God's interactions with them, his leading of them, leads to certain doctrines and beliefs that he intends to convey in concrete ways. Now, what's interesting about the 
doctrine of the afterlife in particular is that's really throughout the Old Testament, and people testified to it throughout. One of everybody's favorite psalms is Psalm 23, and it says that we will dwell in the house of God forever, which, if you think about it, that's not the temple, because you don't live in the temple, and you don't live there forever, so it's not the temple. It's in the very presence of God with an eternal life. Now, when Jesus was confronted by this unbelief in his own day in the resurrection, this is in Luke, although I'd rather cite it like Hebrews cites certain passages. Someone says somewhere, (laughs) (laughs) but it's in Luke when Jesus is confronted by people who didn't believe in the resurrection. He said, well, of course the resurrection is taught because after they died, God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God is not the God of the dead, and all those who belong to him live. So once God says, I am the God of Abraham, after Abraham dies, it proves the resurrection, Jesus says. I think that's well made, and I appreciate that, that the writer to the Hebrews is not making up things. The writer to the Hebrews is simply reading the Psalms, Psalm 16, Psalm 23, and many other places where even just the narratives themselves, and from that, drawing inferences. All right, in verses 23 through 28, there is a meditation on Moses, and he is a difficult figure in some respects in Hebrews, if only because Hebrews has some strong language about the inferiority of the Old Covenant, which he associates very closely with Moses. So what are we to make of Moses here, and particularly of Moses' faith? Well, Moses' faith is in accordance with the faith of everybody recounted so far, because Moses has genuine faith, and he believes the testimony given to him, and he believes the revelation, the testimony that God gave to those prior to him, which he knew, and he believed it. And so when the time came for him to act on his faith, he acted properly. The heart of it is in verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And then going on, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So he sees him who is invisible by the testimony borne to him. And he prefers the reproach of Christ, which he sees in the reproach heaped on God's people and upon the believers throughout all the ages prior to him and after, as it were. For example, Abel also received the reproach of Christ, as it were, the reproach heaped on those who would hold to Christ. Moses prefers that to the wealth and the treasures of Egypt, for he's looking for a reward that's not of this creation but one in the world to come, which is vaster and more wonderful and more robust and full of life than anything this creation can contain. And Moses knows that and testifies to us of these things. So we have to follow Jesus again in the Gospel of John when he says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because Moses wrote of me. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Moses was a Christian, in a sense, looking forward to the things that we have here in the New Covenant. And so you can't set up a situation where Moses belongs to something else entirely and where we don't have any relation. We have the same object of our faith. Moses was looking forward to Jesus, and we 
as New Covenant believers also are looking at Christ. What is interesting is that in our day, the 21st century, you have to defend that view because one of the earliest Christian writers after the New Testament is a fellow named Ignatius of Antioch, and he wrote somewhere around 110 A.D., So he's very early. And he would say the same things as we're saying today. I remember some passages where it's not very elaborate because he's not writing about this point. But he says things like, well, the prophets are ours. They're Christians. (laughs) He doesn't say that word exactly, but he makes clear that the prophets don't belong to the Jews. They are Christians. They belong to us because they're proclaiming Christ to us. He understands that the Bible, the Old Testament, and the New Testament, obviously, but the Old Testament in particular, and the prophets in them are prophesying of Christ. Maybe he had read First Peter, where in First Peter 1 it says, and the Spirit of Christ in the prophets was speaking. It was the great opponents of the early church, the great opponents of the Orthodox, the Valentinians and Marcion and his followers, who set up the radical dichotomy between Moses and Christ. And it was the Orthodox, as you say, Ignatius among the Apostolic Fathers, and Justin and Irenaeus and others, who argued for a substantial continuity between Moses and Christ. And now in our age, we live in a kind of quasi-Gnostic age where it's common for well-intentioned believers to set up a hard dichotomy between Moses and Christ or everything before Christ and the new covenant, almost as if they were two separate systems. Well, time is getting away. Let's quickly consider verses 29 through 31 and then the last section of the chapter. What are we to make of the, by faith, people crossed the Red Sea as if on dry ground, and then the appeal to Jericho and Rahab? Well, once again, you have to see that the faith here is really a faith in Christ and the realities of Christ that's brought to them in these picture forms of their day, so that the opponents of Christ will fall like the walls of Jericho, that even those whose lives demonstrate they're the most needy of grace, like Rahab, by faith she didn't perish with those who were disobedient, because it was by faith she testifies that she has a hope in the God of Israel. And once she makes that confession that she hopes in the God of Israel for deliverance, you see that she now joins the great line of saints, even though she has this background as a prostitute. She's been washed and consecrated and brought into fellowship with the blood of Christ. Because throughout this chapter, you have to understand that the faith that the author of the Hebrews is promoting here is not faith in general. It's not just having a kind of faith of Dorothy of the Wizard of Oz, clicking your heels three times and hoping against hope something good will happen. This is faith in Christ. This is faith in the living, resurrected Christ who gave himself as an offering once for all for us. And again, he's developing this out of a whole book that he's written so far where that's made very perfectly clear. He gives us a list now of ways in which people suffered, and he doesn't list who they are, but just what they suffered in verses 32 and following. I have two questions. One, it's interesting that he does this in the way that he does it, and it would be interesting to have you talk about that for a moment. And two, does that say anything about the kind of pressure that the believers 
were perhaps facing already in their own time as they were hearing this read, or that was not very far away with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD? Well, the first question and the second question are really very similar. He starts speeding up because he wants to just summarize really the whole of Scripture and show you that the line of believers and faith and witnesses to the realities of things that are not yet seen but are real because they have divine testimony behind them keeps marching on throughout the Old Covenant and he starts mentioning people by name without elaborating on how they did that. And then he starts saying things that would resonate with his audience because they would face these kinds of terrible trials themselves, you know, facing the lions, for example. And certainly, as you say, the pressure and the antagonism of the world against people who believe in Christ. Because he's showing throughout this chapter and elsewhere that these witnesses are testifying in the midst of this world as pilgrims. I think, again, you have to go back to my favorite section of this chapter, that like the patriarchs who are confessing that they are strangers and aliens in the land, you could say pilgrims in the land, well, it's in this world. We're pilgrims in this world because we have a heavenly homeland that is where our true citizenship lies and our true hope lies. But we have been brought into contact with that by expressing faith in Christ. And this uh, really is where he's going to take us in chapter 12. I won't go there. We'll, I'm sure you'll have someone speak about this later, but this is the two mountains. You've not come to a mountain that can be touched, but we have, by accepting the gospel and through the Spirit, been brought into contact with the realities of the world to come, this heavenly Mount Zion and the occupants there, which include the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Well, that's these people from chapter 11. It's these people who have been brought into, in their spirit, waiting the resurrection of their bodies, but in their spirits have been brought into fellowship with Christ in the presence of God. That's what being made perfect means. I'd like you to walk us through and help us think about what the writer to the Hebrews says in the last two verses. And all these, verse 39, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Talk about the benefits of being in the new covenant and what it means for us that we are part of the making of all of these people who've been listed as witnesses, making them perfect. This small two-verse section is such a complex passage because it connects with elsewhere in Hebrews so directly, and you have to, once again, read it in light of the rest of Hebrews. But at this point, you see, he's saying they received testimony through their faith, all of them, but they didn't receive the thing promised. Now, the thing promised has to connect with things not yet seen, that then he later on elaborates and says, it's heavenly. It's not of this creation. It's a city made by God, which he has prepared for them. It's not made by hands. It's not of this creation. And you really should understand it as the new creation and the kingdom that will not be shaken, terms that he uses, which is a reference to the kingdom of God, of course. So they didn't inherit those things apart from us. Think about if Abraham had immediately inherited the land. He might have imagined that that's all there was, and then he would die, and then so much for his inheritance. But by waiting and not receiving that land promised to him, he then had to wait and was receiving testimony that the true inheritance was not of this creation. Well, 
He, like us, has to wait for the new creation in its fullness. But there's a difference. And that's where Hebrews, along with the rest of the New Testament, makes clear that the coming of Christ makes a difference. The difference is not in his sanctity. It's not in his piety. I'm thinking about Abraham or really any of the other saints, including Rahab, if I say his, I mean the women as well who are shown here to be witnesses. There, the real difference between them and us is the coming of Christ and the fact that Christ has inaugurated these things and put us into contact with the powers of the age to come in a clearer and a more direct way we see Jesus. We don't yet see everything put under the feet of the human race, you know, man, Adam, and Eve, but we do see Jesus crowned with glory and honor and resurrected from the dead and seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's where we will be. So that you can see that that's what God had in mind all along in the Old Testament, verse 40. Since God had provided something better for us and for them, they didn't inherit apart from us so that we all would then inherit together the new creation. That's where Hebrews has been taking us, and that's where he ends the chapter appropriately, because that's the testimony he would bear to us, and he sees the testimony of the Old Testament saints echoing as well. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.